0: Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, going back to the classroom, is it the right time to open up the schools? Downloading the COVID Safe app doesn't seem to be very effective, but maybe that's not the point of it. And we've got a by election coming up in New South Wales, so we have a look at the seat of Eden Monero. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics.
1: And I'm David Lewis presumptive Liberal candidate for the seat of Eden Monero.
0: For those in the community who thought that there might be a path towards consensus during the time of the COVID-19 crisis, well, that's turned out to be a false dawn and it's back to politics as usual. There has been a rift between the Prime Minister on one side and State Premiers on the other, with a difference of opinion about whether schools should be fully reopened or not. Scott Morrison wants schools fully reopened now, using limited medical data to force his agenda, while the premiers want to adopt a more cautious approach, suggesting more medical research needs to be carried out before schools can open up again, and that makes a lot of sense. The state premiers and chief ministers, they're actually responsible for managing the schools, and if there's an outbreak at the school when they do open up, well, they're the ones that will clean up the mess, and they are the ones that will take the political blame for it. Education is important, but so is public health. Why would the Prime Minister be so keen for the schools to open up again so quickly?
1: Education is important, but at the crux of everything is health. The old saying, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. The Prime Minister, I think, there's a a couple of motives here as to why he wants to reopen the schools. One, it's about kicking into the teachers' union. Peter Dutton tweeted that Anna Palaszczuk was frightened of the Queensland Teachers' Union, which is why she wouldn't open the schools. Total nonsense, of course. I think that is a part of it. I think that's that type of ideology running underneath this. I think, too, the Prime Minister wants the economy to get back to normal, because what we have discovered is that the economy is very weak. Two weeks into this, Big businesses were hold, holding out their hands for money, and these are billion dollar uh, businesses that f- are floating in cash. I think uh, the emperor's new clothes of the economy has been completely shown, and, and that the neoliberal economy, the le- neoliberal approach to things, has been shown to be false. Because if the economy can't protect ourselves in a pandemic, what's the point of an economy? The howl of frustration when four contractors were killed under the pink bat scheme in 2010 sorry 2008 has been shown to be ridiculous with the 80 deaths of people now australia has done pretty well uh, but we haven't done quite well enough we could have done better and pushing people back to work pushing people back to may lead to disaster the third thing i think that the Prime Minister is after. Again, it's to do with the money. It's because a lot of big liberal donors, a lot of liberal supporters, and little liberal supporters too, have lost income and they want to, to get that income back. But there's no point in the income if you're dead or dying.
0: Well, that's exactly right. And of course, the economy is very important to the well-being of society, but it depends on whether that economy is reflective of the values of that society. And we've been consistently pointing this out in the past, and because of neoliberalist ideas and practices, it seems that there is a mismatch between the economy and society. The the main reason Morrison wants this snapback of the economy back to the way that it used to be is that he doesn't want people to get used to this new economic way of thinking, the new way of working. Currently, people are having a better work-life balance. It's, it is complicated because of social distancing, of course. But at the moment, they're off the work treadmill. The air is much cleaner, and that has obvious health benefits. But Morrison doesn't want people to enjoy this too much or get used to this situation too much because trying to adapt the economy to fit in to this new way of economic thinking i I think is beyond his ideological capacities and getting schools back to full operation that's a pathway for the economy to open up again according to scott morrison's terms not according to the new way of economic thinking sure there are inequities for online learning for schools some schools have a set of tasks that are released at nine o'clock in the morning and as soon as those tasks are completed that's the end of the school day for those students and sometimes that finishes at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock other schools have a more comprehensive school timetable where there's students having set classes throughout the day with their usual teachers and it's almost like being at school except they're in front of their computers at home so it would be ideal for schools to return as soon as possible for a wide range of educational access and equity issues, but what are we going to do if there's an outbreak when those schools fully reopen again?
1: I'm preparing for a second lockdown, to be quite honest. And that's not by, when I say preparing, I'm just not going back to my normal way of doing things, because I think there is going to be a second lockdown. We're going into flu season and one of the things with this illness is that we don't know a lot about it there's thought that it may have permanent damage to lungs and other parts of the body but we don't know it may not hopefully it doesn't of course we don't know if you are immune from it once you've had it or whether it can come back that's a big one there's no certainty as to children infecting adults yet it does seem that children don't infect other children, but we're not sure if they infect adults or not. There is evidence pointing towards that. It's not conclusive yet. Countries that have reopened their schools or who didn't close their schools, like Sweden, have had much larger infection rates than countries that kept their schools on a minimal. The other thing too is that I don't know that the school should have been closed because I think that for kids whose both parents or whose sole parent uh, work in essential industries, schools may be open with a skeleton staff to help with those kids. Year 12 is another issue. And I know that's a challenge too. The other thing to remember with school is that, you know, we're on a model that was developed in 1854 in New South Wales when the first Education Act came out and that has been tinkered at. This is in no way to disparage teachers in a classroom, by the way. But we've seen that there are other ways of learning. And perhaps one of the results of this is that we rethink how schools go.
0: The Prime Minister and his entourage of chief medical officers, they've been quite irresponsible about this. And doctors do practice the Hippocratic Oath, which is to act... And engage with the patient in the best way possible, and in the interests of the of the patient, but it seems like they've been leaving their Hippocratic oath at the at the door. Their information has been confusing, it's been contradictory, it's been full of spin. The chief medical officers there's the there's Brendan Murphy he's the chief, and then there's Nick Coatesworth and Paul cully they're the deputy chief medical officers, but to me they seem to be like politicians with stethoscopes and The whole push to get schools fully reopened again, that's been based on one piece of evidence and that's a five-page document produced by New South Wales Health, which pretty much is documentary evidence about what happened. It just outlines that there were nine school students that were infected. That happened, they went to hospital, they recovered, schools closed down for three days and that was the end of it. So it doesn't actually provide any recommendations about how to proceed. It's simply documenting those incidents at the Epping Boys High School and nothing else. This to me seems quite irresponsible. As far as epidemiology is concerned, well, you don't make your recommendations or create reports just based on one piece of evidence you you research quite widely you look at what's happening not just in Australia but you look at what's happening around the world and there is a German virologist Christian Drosden. he suggested that the and, that, and he's the one that's guiding the German government about opening up schools he's saying that opening up is not a very good idea at all children can transmit and receive the virus as much as adults can although the effects are not as severe Then Mark opened up their schools on April the 15th, that's just over two weeks ago, and their infection rate within the community doubled within two weeks.
1: And, and it hasn't really been said here, but it seems to be the policy. And it's been said in Britain, it's been a total disaster is this notion of herd immunity. To get herd immunity naturally requires a very high death rate, two to three percent so you need a vaccine. And we don't know how far away we are from a vaccine. SARS still doesn't have a vaccine. They've been working very hard on it. Angela Merkel of Germany has been one of the outstanding leaders. Now, of course, she's a scientist. She, I don't think she was a virologist, but she can understand numbers that are presented to her properly and critically analyze them. Margaret Thatcher, too, uh, was someone who was able to examine numbers properly without necessarily being an expert in the field but knows how to listen to experts we don't have that here we have a man who is seemingly hell-bent on getting everybody back to work except himself parliament's still not sitting till august in a time where we need parliament i think he better enjoy his high popularity ratings because i don't think they're going to last
0: I would rather trust a scientist over a politician. Angela Merkel is actually both, so I'm not sure what we do in this in that situation, but Scott Morrison obviously he's not a scientist, he is a politician, he's filled with spin, bluff and blustering. That's the that's the realm of the politician, that's what we have to expect. But in this time of crisis, the community has been expecting that there's a unified approach to solving public health issues and To be fair, we did achieve that for for some time, but that's sort of been blown apart over the past week or two. You mentioned before Peter Dutton having a go at the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk. We also had this episode on the weekend where Dan Tehan, he's the Education Minister, he attacked Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, on live television. Let's have a listen to it. This is a failure of leadership by Dan Andrews.
2: Let's be clear about this, and you know where the impact is is being felt on the most vulnerable children. Are you saying that the system, through the National Cabinet, is not delivering the right result? It's not, because we have one Premier in particular who is jeopardising the national consensus on this. What about Gladys Berejiklian and what about Anastasia Palaszczuk? Well, so what, what what has Gladys done? She now has a plan to open her schools and she started opening her schools. Well, they'll start one day a week in a week's time. Yeah, and, and if you have a look, the Catholic schools uh, in New South Wales are committed to return to teachers in the classroom in the coming weeks. And what about Queensland? And what about Queensland? They have a plan to reopen their schools when? as well. So they've, they're hoping to do it by the end of the month. They have a clear plan. Yet here in Victoria, we don't have one. We have nothing. And it is the children ultimately in the end and those... You know most disadvantage who are suffering, and I think it's time that we seriously call Dan
0: Andrews out so, the- so there he is, he's attacking Daniel Andrews. now he did backtrack maybe three or four hours after he made those attacks. The issue is that the attacks were already out they're already out there. Who heard the backtracking or who heard that he was going to take back that? attack on Daniel Andrews. These are not attacks that take place in isolation. Dan Tehan, he is the education minister. Scott Morrison, he's the prime minister. He's the one that coordinates all of these sort of issues. If he wants the premiers to be attacked politically, he's the one that will order that. Nothing happens unless the prime minister gives the okay for it. It was uncalled for. It was unnecessary. The community wants to see political unity on these sorts of issues. And and we've got a government that is keen to look at political opportunities rather than good health and education outcomes.
1: Uh, We've said it here before, we could nearly make this the, the motto of the podcast. We have the wrong government federally at the wrong time. One of the things that we've shown about the Australian system is that anybody can become Prime Minister. From this though, not anybody should. I think we need to rethink how we get our Prime Ministers I'm not quite sure how we do that and keep it democratic, but I, I think the parties have to grow up. Of course, putting decent funding into schools so people can learn about how to vote properly how the political system works and what makes a good prime minister as opposed to a bad one. And you can do that without looking at policy and biasing it in any, in any way.
0: Well, if you do want to enter into the public service, you do have to do a public service test and you do have to pass that with flying colours. So maybe when it comes to the Prime Minister selection process, instead of having a show of hands by numbers within the respective party rooms, perhaps the aspiring Prime Minister should sit a Prime Ministerial test and they could go through a whole range of issues. Could They could be asked all these science questions, maths questions, geography, economics... Political questions, and there's 100 questions, and whoever gets the most answers right becomes Prime Minister. I think that might be a better way to go. But just getting back to coronavirus, overall Australia is doing quite well. Currently there are 913 active cases. The reproduction rate, though, it has increased to 1.05, and it needs to be kept under 1.0. It was at 0.81 two weeks ago, now it's at 1.05. Because Australia does have a, relatively speaking, it does have a low number of active cases, getting it to 1.5 is not such a big problem just at this stage. If the numbers are starting to push up, why make the big push to open up schools again? Why make the big push to open up the economy again? Give it another month and these numbers could virtually be eliminated.
1: We should be, under, and not just under one, but under one for between 14 or 21 days. And some epidemiologists say 14 is enough, others say 21 to be safe. We haven't got near that yet. And those are the types of figures that don't lie. And in fact, I think New Zealand had its first day where no one got it. South Australia's had a couple of days where no one's got it too, at least one day. But we haven't had that 14 days straight in our area anyway, and I'm not sure anywhere in the world. But those are the types of things we need before we can open up. And I think we just have to be really patient. And it's hard, and it's difficult, and it's boring, but it's better than the alternative. What has been forgotten, really, and it's only started to come back, but it's not part of folk memory, if you like is the the so-called Spanish flu of 1919 to 1921. And that came in three waves. And the second wave was worse than the first wave. The first wave was okay, then they opened up too early. And the second one was where the numbers went from the tens of thousands into the, the millions. And this is what we really should be trying to avoid.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, to download or not to download, that is the question, and we will provide all the answers. The Australian government has released COVID Safe. It's an app that can be downloaded by citizens to trace their movements and inform them when they've been in close contact with someone who has tested positive to coronavirus. Sounds like that could be a good idea, but we don't live in a perfect world. We have a government very keen to keep a tab on people for ulterior motives. There are privacy issues, trust in government issues. There's a wide range of technical issues that reduces the operability of the app. And there's one big problem. The app doesn't actually work. The government keeps changing its tune about the viability of the app. First, a 40% download rate was considered a success. Then that number dropped down to 20%. And then they virtually said that it didn't really matter how many times it was downloaded. Again, this seems to be another spin and marketing exercise for the government in its haste to get the economy up and running again, and at the expense of public health.
1: This is a government that couldn't get a census right. A census is a big job, but it's not a terribly hard job. It's a complex job. I I don't want to uh, disparage the notion of that type of statistical collecting. But since 1904, we've collected this stuff. This is a government that destroyed an NBN for a business that we now know is completely unviable. This is a government that has used things improperly. In New South Wales, a couple of years back, the new opal system for the trains was used to trace the uh, movements of suspected criminals. I am not easy with that. Yes, criminals should be arrested. You get a slippery slope as to who is a criminal. It's not far from, well, we're tracing drug dealers or terrorists or kidnappers to we're chasing people who are critical of the government. We're chasing intellectuals. We're chasing people of a background or religious belief we don't like. That
0: sounds very much like the 1930s.
1: Yeah, it it does. And I know that the information, the data that is being collected, which is being stored in the Amazon cloud, so it's being stored in private servers, which has its own problems. It might work perfectly, but it's not something that inspires a lot of trust. Uh, It's also being shared with Australia's agreement with the so-called Five Eyes, the the other five intelligence agencies, America, Britain, New Zealand, Australia and Canada. I mean, you've got the loony Barnaby Joyce, you know, he's had enough government in his life. Seems to me there's an easy solution to that, Barnaby. You can step down from your seat and go and earn money in a job somewhere else, except Gina's the only one who will hire you and her family don't want you. Pauline Hanson has said similar things too. But from the other perspective, if it was collecting, I've been in two minds because, yeah, I do want to help the health department chase this stuff. But 15 minutes before, in contact with someone before it pings you, when this stuff can be passed on just by passing you in the street.
0: Well, Barnaby Joyce and Pauline Hanson, they're great on the conspiracy theories, especially Pauline Hanson and her One Nation entourage. Technology generally, that should be a friend of the government. It should be a friend of the public as well. But governments tend to not use technology effectively. They tend to use it for ulterior motivations. And conceptually, an app such as COVID Safe, conceptually, it's a good idea. In this case, there are so many flaws, there are so many ifs and buts. You've got to have your Bluetooth on, the screen has to be opened. And your phone has to be unlocked if it's an iPhone. There's so many problems with this particular piece of technology. Generally, most people in the community, they're they're very happy to download any app without any privacy concerns. The Facebook app, for example, on your iPhone, that's that's a gold mine for Facebook. There are suspicions about how data can be used and will be used by governments. Is there a possibility that the Liberal Party somehow will end up with the information and they'll use it for their direct SMS marketing at the 2022 election. And if I was in the back end of either political party or any political party, that's key data that I'd really love to have my hands on.
1: Oh, for sure. We're getting very big brother and very George Orwell here with this type of stuff. Again, it's a, a government scared of technology, wanting to use the technology for potentially nefarious purposes and a government that doesn't know how to use it.
0: Well speaking of George Orwell we always love to bring up George Orwell and throw him into the conversation whenever possible but even the the name of the app it's covid safe it should be called covid trace because that's effectively what it's trying to do but covid safe it's it's more of a marketing term it gives people a false sense of security some people through social media have actually been promoting this idea that it will make them safe and it would actually get rid of the virus so there's a lot of misunderstanding about what viruses are but if you're getting that sort of understanding that downloading the app will physically make you make you safe even if there's only a small amount of people that are thinking that that's not a good sign
1: they were talking about making it compulsory to download i don't know how you do that Uh, except spot checks on telephones they did walk away from that And this type of thing needs a very high take up, much more than, you know, you need 50 to 60 percent to make sure it's a very good statistical figure. And then used properly to look at where the outbreaks are, to look at where the people who have it have been anonymously, of course, could be a great thing. But we know that it doesn't have the capabilities for that. Because it was done too quickly and too expensively in the way that only the current government can do. And no real strategy has been brought in, except I'm sure they spoke to experts in health who said, well, this is what we'd want it to do. And then others started meddling with it.
0: App development is a fine art. This COVID safe app, it was developed within a two week period. That's so rapid. And of course, once a app is developed and released, you can upgrade it. You can sort out your bugs as you go along. There's no problem at all with that. But if the app was going to be 100% effective, I'm pretty sure the government would have worked out a way of making sure that as many people downloaded that as possible, whether they have to do that legislatively, whether they had to implement full GPS tracking within that. But again, it gets back to this whole process of trust in government is at an all-time low they've also had to resort to populist types of messages as well greg hunt the health minister put out the message saying want to go to the footy download the app scott morrison also put out that message well if you want to go back to the pub download the app why don't they say, well, if you want to go and see live music, download the app, or if you want to go to a bookshop, download the app? Like this is all populist garbage, and the cheer squad in the media have been pushing the whole line about downloading the app as well. And this is really surprising, so soon after their "Your Right to Know" campaign.
1: The mainstream media is, of course, run by large corporations, and it's it's, it's that simple. So it's within News Corp or Seven West or even CBS's, who owns Channel 10, the Macquarie Network on radio. Uh, it's within all their interests to keep the status quo. Your right to know only works when it affects them ne- negatively. It's easy to be a rebel when you've got nothing to lose. It's hard to be a rebel when you don't. They're not rebels.
0: <laughs> well, the upshot is that the COVID Safe app seems like the project isn't going to work effectively it's not going to be a very effective app you need so many people to download it and activate it at all times the intention was probably that it didn't really have to work the the idea was that it was just to give the government cover to open up the economy in the same way as they're using flimsy reports just to push the idea that schools need to be reopened they're pushing all of these ideas it's a bit of a marketing idea and it will be at the expense of public health
1: I guess you, you're going to need a politician's family to get it. But I think it's going to have to take that for some of them to realise. And I hope it doesn't. But there's this lack of awareness of how serious this is. The underlying message has been we can afford to leave the, lose these couple of lives. It's only, it only attacks the weak. And again, the term the weak is a a loaded term may not mean what we all think it means
0: you're listening to new politics you can subscribe to us on apple or google Podcasts. listen through soundcloud and spotify or find us at newpolitics.com.au up next unlike the rest of the community we love elections and we've got one coming up soon it's only a by-election but we have a look at the seat of eden monero Seat of Eden Monero is a large area on the far south coast of New South Wales, and the electors will be going to the polls soon. We don't know when, but it will happen. The sitting member, Mike Kelly, he's retired due to ill health, and it's going to be a battle between the Mayor of Bega Valley, Christy McBain, and an unknown Liberal or National Party candidate. We just don't know at the moment. Eden Monero was one of those bellwether seats and was held by the government of the day between 1972 and 2016. It's a marginal seat and it's evenly split. There's a strong Liberal vote on the inland side of the seat and that's balanced by a strong Labor vote on the coastal side of the seat. Should be an interesting by-election. There has been the fallout from the recent bushfires which badly affected this region, the effects of the coronavirus, the practical part of being able to hold a campaign and run a campaign during these times in an area that does have very difficult terrain, and a popular and effective local mayor against a series of rejects dished up by the Liberal and National parties. It should be interesting to see how this one pans out, David.
1: Whoever wins it, it's going to be a, a tough and a hard fight. It, Eden Manero is not an easy seat. Well, Labor has put in a good candidate. It, it seems I don't. I don't know that she'll necessarily win, but a good, strong local figure always does well. The national party were going to run John Barilaro, and I think his career ended today with uh, revelations that he's been travelling down to his country farm from the city. Two hours away in breach of restrictions. It may not have ended today, but it's it's not a good look. Plus, texts that were leaked to the federal National Party leader Michael McCormack did not reflect well on Barillaro. I didn't. At least I didn't think so, and I suspect a lot of voters in the seat wouldn't have thought so. Andrew Constance, on the face of it, not a bad choice for the uh, Liberal Party performed very well as a local member during the bushfires, shared his struggles with mental health, was genuinely, and I know this because I, I know people in his state seat and they Greens and Labour voters, but they said he's a very good local member. However, he was a poor performer in the New South Wales state government, a state government that has not performed terribly well. His time as transport minister has not been great, His time as treasurer was pretty mediocre is probably overselling it. Bad is probably a better word. I think in a tough fought campaign, he might not have been the guy. Uh, I think he would have done well for a few weeks. And as the more relevant issues came out, it may have damaged him. Also, he wasn't a local. His uh, state seat borders Eden Monero but doesn't actually cross into it. Well, the other factor
0: to point out is that certainly he performed quite well during the bushfires in that region earlier on this, this year. He appeared on national television. He was on the Q&A program. He talked about his struggles with mental health during the bushfire crisis. He showed emotion. That's absolutely fantastic. But the the issue was that the media just went into a lather about that process, that He's a guy. He's he's such a great bloke. Ignoring his performance over the past 17 years, which hasn't been great. As you mentioned before, he might be a great local member, but when it comes to being anything above that, being a minister, being a treasurer, he's just a pretty poor performer and he has been for, for some time. But the by-election hasn't actually been called yet and the Labor candidate, Christy McBain, she's already seen off three contestants. That's John Barillaro from the National Party, Andrew Constance from the Liberal Party has pulled out, Jim Molan, he's he's a Liberal Party senator at the moment, he's actually withdrawn his candidacy as well. There's even talk of the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott entering the race. It seems like the Liberal Party or the National Party, they're just not keen to win this seat.
1: If I was the Liberal Party... And, you know, they're forever rigging me for advice. And you can see from, you know, my advice (laughs) halts. They've been in government since 2013. But I would be looking for the absolute best candidate, probably a local business person or a local council person, whether elected or someone who's known in the community. Now, the other thing is that very rarely does a government win a by-election. I saw a figure the other day that they've only won... Uh, a government has only won a seat from an opposition in a by-election once from 1920. By-elections are hard for governments. Governments, even popular governments, tend not to win them. But if I was the government, I would be really wanting this extra seat. At the moment, there are one car accident, one mental health breakdown, one heart attack, one philosophical argument that causes a split away from an election, that they may not win. To get that extra seat, it seems to me, would require a top candidate. Now, again, Tony Abbott, on the face of it, a top candidate, till you look at his record. (laughs) Yes, he was prime minister, but he didn't even qualify for the pension. Uh, He wasn't prime minister for long enough. It was chaotic. It was awful. He went from a landslide 20-seat majority. By the time Malcolm Turnbull took over, they were back to one seat, which they haven't been able to capitalise on since. They're still on pretty much that. Well, the
0: Liberal Party does have a habit of putting weak candidates into into the seat. Between 2013 and 2016, Peter Hendy, he's from, he was the head of the Business Council of Australia for a little while. He was Not a very good performer. He ended up losing the seat after just one term. Seems like they don't take the seat very seriously. If they're talking about the possibility of Tony Abbott, he lives in the North Shore of Sydney, and then just sending him down to an area that he's never lived in, doesn't even care about. I'm sure that he's set foot in the seat of Eden Monero, but why why would a party put in someone who's out of politics? Sure, he used to be a Prime Minister, but... He would just be a totally unsuitable candidate. And the Australian electorate, it does have a tradition of giving the government of the day a good old-fashioned kick when it comes to a by-election. They know that it usually can't result in the change of government. But this one, it's actually hard to predict. There's no reliable polls. Scott Morrison is riding high in the polls personally, although we've discussed this before in previous podcasts, that if you look at his actual performance, it is quite poor. He's behaving very politically, people seem to be drinking the Kool-Aid, but, you know, aside from all of those facts, we just don't know what will happen in the by-election when it actually is, is called. And of course, by-elections are, are important for both sides of politics. We have to look at what this by-election means for Anthony Albanese. There have been criticisms of Anthony Albanese ever since he became opposition leader just over a year ago. That he's acted very quickly. He wanted Chrissy McBain to be the pre-selected candidate. That was all over and done with, within a couple of days. There was some talk within the media that there were disgruntled Labor Party members that wanted a different candidate. But what's new? That always happens. It doesn't matter if it's a Liberal Party pre-selection or a Labor Party pre-selection or Greens or any other party. There will always be disgruntled people that were not happy about their candidate not getting up it's not a big deal for scott morrison there's already been three candidates that have pulled out of the race talk of a former prime minister entering the race who, who knows what will happen here but so far uh, it's only been four or five days not that many people do follow a, a by-election we don't know when it's going to run it could be another two months or three months before it actually happens but so far after a series of mistakes going on it hasn't started off so well for scott morrison
1: I think the other thing, too, is that Mike Kelly has gone for, when I say a good reason, I mean politically good reason, genuine health issues that he got as a soldier in Iraq. When I say this is good, I don't mean that it is good. It must be horrible for him. And I think he needs to be praised for sticking to the job as long as he did. In terms of why is he leaving, he's not stepping down to spend more time with his family because, you know, next week there's a a botched policy announcement coming out or some kind of scandal. I'm sure he doesn't really want to go. It's not a great time to go as, as an opposition member because, you know, there's a time where a lot of pressure can be put on the government and also in the middle of a pandemic. But he has to. His health, his health is more important too. And I think this might give them a boost. People have been saying that Georgina Downer is interested in the seat. I think that just started off as a, as a comedy type thing and has been blown into a serious suggestion. I don't think she's considered it. I don't think she wants to move to New South Wales after moving back to Victoria. I suspect she's got her eye on a Senate seat myself, but I don't know. I can't think of any national figure offhand who would be an outstanding choice Uh, and i don't know the area well enough to say there's ex business person or public servant or whomever who's a well-known local but that's where i'd be going and i think too all this talk has damaged it too because whoever it is now will seem like a fifth choice
0: but the seed of Eden Monero was severely affected during the bushfires of, of towards the end of 2019 and early earlier this year. There was a lot of money that was promised for that area to rebuild the economy, rebuild the community. Very little has actually come through from the federal government that was over four months ago now so there's people in that community there's people in that seat that are still waiting for money to come through they're still waiting for support to come through the money that has been coming through has there has been a little bit of money coming in from the new south wales state government there's been money that's been coming in from uh, the red cross and other charitable organizations not much has been coming through but I suspect that because there is a by-election that has that will happen, we can expect a truckload of money to be coming through. Dongas' promises of rebuilding, all the promises that were made many months ago that have yet to be delivered, they'll start coming through. And Scott Morrison will be looking for miracle mark two after the 2019 election victory. He'll campaign as hard as he can, which is what you'd expect from the political contest. But given the circumstances of mike kelly's resignation for medical reasons he should probably play dead in this situation and possibly not even field a candidate but that's probably asking for a bit too much that's it for this new politics podcast don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us and if you'd like to support our publishing ventures and podcasts there's a donate button on our website Or if you want more than just listening to our pearls of political wisdom, you can purchase our latest book, Divided Opinions, full details at newpolitics.com.au or you can find it direct on Amazon. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in. David and I will be back in a fortnight for more opinions and analysis on the bizarre world of Australian politics.